Good morning from the UK Column studio in Plymouth. Uh, we've got part three of our fascinating architectural series with Leon Crea, and uh, I'm delighted to welcome him into UK Column studio this morning. We're going to have a fascinating discussion really about some of the bigger city developments and in particular when we ended uh, part two we were talking about some uh, proposed developments in the Middle East. So um, Leon thank you very much for joining me again. It's a great pleasure to be with you Brian. How are you with respect to heat waves and unbelievably hot weather? I love heat <laughs> and the amount. <laughs> I was brought up in a cold climate, so I never had enough heat <laughs> when I was young. Okay, but is it especially hot where you are at the moment, or is it just sort of... No, no, no. Yeah. It's all exaggerated, you know. You know the media, <laughs> what they do. They see a fire and they, the world is burning. It's, it's all much exaggerated, and the fires are caused by bad management of forests. That's the problem. Up until recent years, I had the opportunity to talk to a firefighter in the United States, and that's exactly one of the comments that he made, that things were being done that were causing problems with the forests and resulting in bigger fires. But let's touch on that at the end of our talk, because we're here to talk about cities and architecture and planning. I was um, introduced to the story of Neon, this big new city that's being proposed in Saudi. And um, I think actually it was, it was our Debbie Evans who pointed me at a, an initial clip showing this very big city. I hadn't heard of it previously, but I was absolutely fascinated at the scale of it. And I'm going to declare straight off that it's not for me. I, I do not... Um, I do not feel that this development is enhancing for mankind. Um, I have lots of other um, concerns about what's actually being done. But nevertheless, I, I can understand the impressive scale of the thing and the fact that it's taken some really uh, into the future thinking to get this thing happening. So before we have a look at a video, can I just uh, ask you, uh, have you... Have you been able to have a look at these, this development in Saudi, this big linear city? Yes, I'm fully aware of what's happening, uh, what has been happening there for 40 years, and uh, it's not going in a good way. I remember I wrote an article about the architect Abdelwahed Al-Wakil, who is the best architect, I think, in the world. He's a student of Hassan Fatih, and he built, in the 1980s, he built traditional mosques on the Corniche in Jeddah. And when I th saw those, I thought, this is an absolute genius. I mean, he builds real traditional architecture today without concrete, purely with brick, with traditional crafts in a country which have virtually no, no craft tradition uh, except in the cities. I mean, it was not a big country with a huge traditional culture. Cities like Jeddah or, or some small towns along the Red Sea were, were obviously beautiful cities, but there was no tradition. He brought those traditions back. And I thought once these buildings are complete, they will be a revolution. They will change the world of the Middle East back to traditional 
building. What happened was the exact opposite. Once his buildings were complete, it's fantastic. He's actually the architect who designed also the Islamic Study Center in Oxford. He had his office in, uh, in London at the time. I was living at, in London. <coughs> and I thought, this must be a guy driving a white Rolls Royce, being extremely wealthy. I went to see him. He had 60 people in his office. And he slept under the desk because he had too much work to go home to Folkestone every night. Uh, this was real, an extraordinary genius. Uh, when I got to know Prince of Wales, I introduced him to, also to, to Prince of Wales, and uh, who became a great supporter and enthusiast. And I wanted him actually to become the architect in charge of building Poundbridge to start with. But then <laughs> you should have seen the scene when I introduced him to the uh, Prince's Council. Uh, somebody said, I don't see why we should have an Arab architect building in Great Britain. And Al-Wakil, whose father had been the last prime minister under King Farouk in, in uh, Egypt, he came from a family of diplomats and very high education. He, he said, you know, gentlemen, if we in the Middle East had the similar attitude to you, <laughs> just imagine <laughs> what our cities would look like. And, um, but it was impossible to get him involved in... Uh, so the Middle East was... You know, they, they were very much dependent on imports from, the, from England and from, later from the United States. And in Egypt, Hassan Fatih was a genius. He died in, I think, 1985. He was recognized internationally as a great architect, but he was a traditionalist, and he built several uh, settlements in Egypt, uh, which were a model how Egypt should develop traditionally. But of course, he had the whole, you know, the government and uh, everybody against him, so much so that when Al-Wakil became his assistant, he brought, and he came from a rather wealthy family, he bought him, brought him the first wealthy clients that this man, who was by then 70, he had such an... Uh, he was so used to be opposed that he started to shout even as the clients who wanted what he was, <laughs> what he was best able to do. So it's a, a kind of tragedy which, which you find in every, every country, but particularly the Middle East, who inherited these um, modernist traditions which have absolutely nothing to do in that climate. Huh? Thank you very much for that. That's a very interesting introduction, and um, you've already got me. You've already got me thinking um, about those aspects of of where architecture comes from. And we can be in a, from my point of view, I can be in a country overseas, but actually, what I'm looking at is architecture that's originated back in the West. Um, yeah, look. Let's have a look at this. Uh, 
promotional video clip for Neom. It's a, a few minutes long, three minutes to be precise, but it's Neom explained in three minutes. So this seems to me a, to be a good place to start. And uh, we have a little bit of commentary after that video. There's then a further clip, which is much shorter, um, which really takes us inside the city. So for our audience, let's play out Neom explained and then um, Leon, it'd be really good to hear your comments. What is Neon? This is Neon, or here to be more precise, in the northwest of Saudi Arabia. But Neon is more than a place. It's a home for people who dream big. Bigger than that. That's more like it. It'll be a hub for innovation, an entirely new model for sustainable living. The vision for a new future. In fact, that's how it got its name. But what will be there? There's Oxagon, a thriving city at the crossroads of the world, where advanced manufacturing will enable industries of the future. Trojana, a year-round mountain destination. And just remember to pack your skis when you visit. Or if skiing's not your thing, there's always Sindala, one of Neom's many beautiful islands, perfect for some R&R. &R. And a line. A 500-meter-high, 200-meter-wide, 170-kilometer-long city in the shape of, well, a line. No roads, cars, or emissions. And everything its 9 million residents could ever need within a 5-minute walk. But best of all, the entire region will offer unparalleled access to nature and will be powered by clean energy. All within easy reach of the rest of the world. I know what you're thinking. Why does the world need Neom? That's a good question. The world needs Neom because the world needs change. That's what we mean when we say... Made to change. Neom represents a global opportunity for one, changing how the world does business by making the region a special economic zone, easing the way for entrepreneurs to blaze their trail. Two, changing the way we live our lives with preventative healthcare and the highest standards of livability. Sounds nice, right? And three, changing how we look after nature and our planet. Because without this, what use are one and two? But how will Neom achieve these aims, you may ask? Within Neom are 14 sectors, spearheaded by the world's best talent. Each sector has been designed to advance technology and push the very limits of human knowledge. Hmm. Imagine Neom as a prototype for a better future. A future for all. One being built to last. Sound good? Great. So when the world asks, what is Neom? You'll know to answer that Neom's a place that'll change the way we live on this planet. Simple, really. Well, there you have it, Leon. What, what's your view on that uh, hard sales pitch? Well, it's a typical euphemistic nonsense, which is being, which is now one sells the most unsustainable ideas with the idea of sustainability. And, <clears throat> um, you know, there's an, somebody who grows coffee in Guatemala told me that in order to grow coffee, you need to respect three conditions. Is one is climate, one is altitude, and the other one is soil. Uh, I happened then to, I thought that was the best formulation actually for traditional 
vernacular architecture around the world. It's these three conditions which have dictated the form and the style and the character uh, of settlements and of architecture worldwide until industrialization and synthetic uh, uh, materials and methods, mechanical methods started to take over. And in a way, Neom is the epitome of absurdity. I mean, there have been many absurd projects, utopian projects in the last hundred years, but this is a kind of the most hubristic and absurd, <laughs> and also not only the music or what goes as music, all the promises which nothing, you know, will, will uh, corresponds to reality. You know, because it has, this kind of architecture this depends entirely on fossil fuel, on cheap fossil fuel. Now, maybe that future politics of, of Saudi and Middle East will uh, try to keep the rest of what is left of fossil fuels for themselves. But even that uh, wouldn't allow this to function uh, for any, any, period, any serious uh, time. That is why I always say that even if we had enough fossil fuels forever, if, if there was no limit to fossil fuel, availability. We should still use traditional design uh, in, in cities and, and architecture. And uh, <clears throat> it is actually because of this project and uh, one thing, one uh, sentence of uh, when President Trump managed to bombard heritage sites in Iran if Iran wouldn't behave you know, according to American wishes that um, I, I started to think we have to do something about it because clearly there is no model in the Middle East, neither in Iran, nor in Saudi, nor in Egypt, except those early models of Hassan Fatih. How one should again build in these, in these uh, countries? There is a small experiment which is actually very, very good, is the revitalization of the, the historic area of Jeddah, which is done by an... Uh, a Lebanese architect, Mohamed Amamoui, which is absolutely a masterful and in the best traditional sense. But other than that, I don't know any example. And that is why I thought, uh, you know, we need to set the model because my, my partner, my main partner is Iranian. He lives in America, but we had, we had to make a gift to, to the Middle East to show them how to build again traditional towns. What came into to my mind very much in, in that promotional video is that it's technology which seems to be the the huge push. And I remember in, in one of the earlier discussions that, that you and I had, you were talking about the fact that you can have modern materials that can be bent into all sorts of interesting shapes. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that you're building the correct building because with a natural material, the the building conforms to the attributes of those local materials, and that helps the form of the building, whereas the high technology sort of just stamps its imprint. And of course, in NEOM here, we've got this on a gigantic scale. Have, have I got that summary right? That, uh, and is this your feeling also on, on NEOM? This is technology. This is a boast of 
of technology and machines in the building rather than the result? Well, it's, it's a high-tech fantasy because uh, high-tech, you know, the, the very term uh, says that there is high and low-tech. <laughs> high-tech is supposed to be better than low-tech. Now, in ecological terms, if you look at the very long term, you will see that the, what we call normally low-tech, like mud architecture, is actually high-tech for certain for when you look at the climate. If you consider that ecology is important, I'm not talking about saving the planet, just ecological, <laughs> healthy, decent architecture, which doesn't kill too many people on the way of building and using and, and sustaining and uh, creating artificial climates, I mean, ski slopes in Saudi, it's the most idiotic idea you can... But people, you know, certain class of people run with this because they find it exciting and new. And, uh, so I think it's, it's really that one has... The whole terminology has to be revised. Also, what is high-tech? And if you consider soil, climate, and altitude, uh, for each of these alt alt uh, conditions... There is an adequate technology for building in a durable way. And it's certainly not high-tech. High-tech you need for building airplanes and bombs <laughs> and, and uh, you know, that sort of thing, but, but certainly not for building settlements which have any future. We saw the li linear city in the video clip, and so my mind then said, OK, well, what's the linear city going to be like? And there was actually another little video clip uh, where effectively we're being taken inside the city. So let's have a look at this second clip and see what this linear city is like. Well, I'll come back to you straight straight away. Is this is this the way that we should be living our lives in the future? Well, it's, it's clearly a high tech fantasy. It has promising nature in a linear city, which is most, which is neither town nor uh, countryside, and you know, with this fake green hanging everywhere, which is more like an exhibition. <laughs> display than real nature or urban parks. It's, no, the very idea of a linear city was based, there were projects like that in the Soviet Union in 1920s and also developed by Le Corbusier, the famous Le Corbusier in the linear city, and uh, which would be, you know, country long, stretch along the country, because the only idea 
the driving idea for the linear city was that you have a system of fast rail and car, of transport and person, circulation of, of, uh, of people and, and hardware, that would be the rational response to you have just one line and you have all the, all the amenities which belong to the city uh, plugged onto a line. The city is exactly the opposite. It's, it's always a network of spaces um, which settle as small as necessary a territory to allow to be fed locally, you know, to have a community which is strong enough to be and, and large enough to make, give reason to a city, which is to produce ideas and hardware which the countryside, which agriculture doesn't produce, and it's the exchange between countryside and city, which created traditional towns. So that you know, to have a city of a certain size, you needed a certain size of agriculture depending on the quality of the, of the land around it. Now, because of mechanical means of transport, uh, we have overstretched those distances that we have now you know, my fruit salad in the morning has mango from uh, Costa Rica. <laughs> it's, and that is, if we look at, at the logistics of a whole society, which is so overstretched that it cannot be sustained over a long period of time because it's entirely dependable, again, on fossil fuel. You know? And uh, therefore, I think if we want to manage intelligently the... You know, the fossil fuel which we have left, which is a very precious material. I think we should build traditional towns and use the car as little as possible, but still allow uh, travel, but not for necessary, obligatory daily uh, purposes, which could be done on foot. I picked up in that last little, or was it the first clip? Uh, it was the first clip. It actually said very gently, everything you need will be within five minutes. And I thought that was very interesting because, of course, that's even shorter than the 15, 15 minute city, which we're talking about at the moment. So my mind then said, does that mean that people are, are just going to live in this little tiny bubble around their apartment within this linear city? Everything you need is five minutes away. So is there interaction in the city outside that little bubble or not? They're relying all on, on quick, on, on extremely fast uh, transit. Uh, so you could actually change if you get bored with where you are or with what you are doing or with the people you are surrounded with. You can then change, you know, go very quickly to another set. But 100 kilometers is a long way huh? to have yes. the same sort of yes. section. 500 meters high. I mean, who are these people? 200 meters wide. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous concept. And on top of it, the line outside uh, will be mirrored. It's mirror. So actually, when you are in the desert or in the mountains where this goes through, you wouldn't see it. That's the idea. You wouldn't see it. <laughs> Imagine the cleaning bill after a sandstorm or, I mean, mirrors need to be clean, otherwise they look sordid. But it's all these ideas which are promises which never once realized, they become banal. 
And that's a tragedy. Yes, the, the, the euphemistic propaganda with which these projects, like not only like Neom, but also the new capital of Egypt, which still has no, after 10 years of building, has no name. It's called the new capital of. When you look at them, they were promised with this incredible uh, propaganda. But when you get, then go to visit them, you, th you think, is this is it? It's the same kind of euphemistic propaganda with which the English new towns uh, were, were promoted after the war. And you go to see them like Cambonot or you know, parts of Glasgow, which have been redeveloped, and it's just sordid, or even of London. Uh, and it has nothing, you know, there's no promise. There's just terrible disappointment and, uh, and, and slumbery. I, I, I really think that is why the Prince of Wales was so important, because he was the first public person to, to call that, you know, to call that bluff that he wouldn't accept anymore the propaganda and said, we have to do things which we have to do to build environments and cities which people will, will love without this propaganda. Yes, this is, this is an interesting point because I, I can recognize that there was, there was a change in architecture after the pressure that he, he put out very publicly. Um, e even in... Um, even in minor housing developments from a uniform state of houses, estate, sorry, a uniform estate of houses where each one looked identical, um, usually in, in rows, um, we started to move towards um, housing developments that would at least attempt to soften the whole design. So we might have them laid out in curves or um, or little closes, but also with subtle differences uh, between the houses, some bigger than others, some, um, some going to be four bedroom instead of two bedroom, whatever it was. But I, I, I've been around long enough to have seen some of those changes and also to see some of the changes in buildings in cities. But we still seem to be get, we still seem to be overtly swamped with buildings which when i look at them i think that cost was the only issue and this then comes comes back to who who has the power to control the development of our cities um one question or one place that takes us is, is is that does it take us into the territory of the global mayors in the future because we're seeing all of this policy created at the moment that we're not going to deal in terms of nation states we're going to deal in terms of cities and it's almost that we're going back to a city-state system worldwide where big powerful cities are going to be the equivalent of big powerful nations yes the, that is one of the mysteries uh, what which is not well explained why for instance uh, <coughs> nation states have developed these enormous capitals, either of administration or industry, like Rome and Milan, and everything else becomes a desert or becomes periphery, or in France, Paris, uh, basically Paris, and, and then the rest, uh, maybe Lyon and Marseille a bit. But uh, because this was not done, they, there was no actual master plan to tell that in the future uh, countries should develop in, in this way. Because I, I was very briefly on a commission for President Mitterrand, 
to discuss whether Paris should grow another 3 million. It had already 3 million then, and this was 1985, whether Paris should grow another 3 million. And the rest of the table of the economists were, uh, yes, uh, we have to recommend to the president to grow another 3 million. And I said, but, you know, we have been, the center of Paris has 3 million, and the rest has, I forget now the number, but like double. But the rest is really awful, you know, built after the war. So you want to add another 3 million like the center of Paris or like the rest which you have been building for, for 30 years now. And so people got very upset, uh, the economists particularly. And I said, but your theory, you know, that we have to recommend that Paris should grow more, is based on the idea of, of the economist who was presenting it, that the Paris citizen produces more value, added value than the rest of French citizens. So I said, but let's then be logic. If that is true, then let's move the whole of France into uh, around Paris, because why then keep the rest? <laughs> and so there was there could not be a serious discussion because all these phenomena are to do with growth models which nobody controls, which is massification, and zoning, as far as territorial zoning goes, is the instrument is the geographic instrument of planning massification, which doesn't allow variety, which creates uniformity, architectural uniformity, financial uniformity, class uniformity, you know, the rich uh, live separate from the poor. And, and it is this kind of division in society which is now coming, actually is exploding. It's no longer controllable. And there are all these you know, unbelievable violence which can explode so far, still under control, but which in the future we have absolutely no idea where something, uh, where violence can, can grow to civil war. Or, because the potential of frustration and violence is so that we may face civil wars soon. And uh, Ukraine is another, another of these examples. How hatred suddenly can be fostered to such an, a point of violence that you send the whole people into its own perdition just because they hate the they hate the Russians, for God, God's sake. No. And they can't win. Is it the case, if you're talking the economists, next to the economists for me are the money men, is it that the economists and the money power is now so powerful that they are calling all the shots on how our cities and our societies develop? The average person on the street would have no idea about these. I'll call them, I'll be provocative and I'll call them long range plans, which would be the Soviet description of them. Um, but the average person has no idea that there are, there are these plans being produced. I, I got a, a glimpse of them many, many years ago when I spent some time as a parish councillor. And uh, uh, much of that job was was very simple, but one of the good things about it was you got the opportunity to read documents that you wouldn't normally read. And one of the documents that came across my desk was called the Devon County Structure Plan. And this was, um, this was a description of quite a massive increase in the number of housing 
uh, units in the county of Devon. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was it was um, I'm going to say three hundred thousand new houses to be built in a particular time. But when I read through it, what I was interested in is that there was lots of talk about house building. Um, there were relatively few equivalent um, paragraphs, not even chapters, on transport. So all of these houses were going to be built. But if you said, OK, well, how are people going to travel? They were inevitably being forced back onto the existing road network. And to my astonishment, really, there was almost nothing being said about rail, railway upgrades in order to provide other forms of transport. And so I ended up with a group of people that challenged some of these uh, ideas in the Devon structure, Devon County structure plan. Um, but also I took the trouble to speak to some of the uh, to follow some of the data and the statistics and the projections back. And I ended up speaking to the government's actuary teams. And they said something very interesting to me. They said that their forecast on the number of houses was based on the forecast on the number of people that were going to be in the in, in Devon and Cornwall. But um, their statistics, once they'd produced their projections, went into a central uh, UK government arena where they said invariably the numbers increased. Somebody else interfered with their data and the projections increased again. And so the lady said to me very nicely, so I have to say to you that when you read the statistics in the Devon County Structure Plan, some of those bear no relation to the projections that we gave the government in the first place. And I was intrigued by this because all of a sudden you started to realise that this was quite a complex process going on, but also there were grey areas where nobody quite knew who was driving it. I don't know what your response to that would be. Well, I think it's you have that in the... You know, there's something about the Club of Rome, the limits of growth, which now everybody, you know, at least on our side, is very critical of because nothing came true of what they predicted. But <clears throat> it is absolutely true that on a limited planet, there's limits of resources, and uh, these resources have to be used uh, wisely in order to, to allow a certain time <laughs> of survival limits of growth, because the limits of growth, we have now uh, economies which grow, which are used to grow at certain percentage. But our debts grow exponentially compared to the economic growth. So how could in the future ever these debts be repaid if there is no, no economic growth to sustain it, particularly if our GDP, as you often explain, on UK column does not really uh, correspond to productive activities, but to services, security, things which have nothing to do with with production, but employ people, but but very unproductively. Uh, <clears throat> you have that also, and bureaucracy which sustains these, and and statistics which sustain this uh, model of growth. Um, they have infiltrated, or they are not infiltrated personally, but they are everywhere. For instance, I planned the, with my brother, we planned the 
New Justice City, La Justice, Justice City, which was planned. The, the, the numbers of offices and, and rooms and uh, the auditoria were planned by a planner. The program was planned by a planner in, in Brussels who interviewed lawyers and ju justice administrators and, and judges and so on. You know what happened between 2000 and 2007, uh, where we planned this, the program had doubled for a country which had stayed the same population. No. <laughs> and so this, it's inevitable that there is this kind of uh, planning which goes on is not, has, does not have a kind of overall benevolent uh, scheme to make things better for the future, but it's sec sectors growing f for each other, and, and you pointed it out. 300, 500,000 more houses, what about the roads? Because these houses which are planned now, whether it's uh, you know, in Devon or, or in Yorkshire, they are imposed by government, the numbers. But what about the roads <laughs> per year? Would, because none of these houses is built in a town where you could walk in five minutes to your work. Everybody has to use either public or private transport uh, t today in this setup. And that is why we need some concepts which would balance. You know, you have first, that's why I say, I wrote something about this, that science you know, have advanced enormously in the macro scale or the micro scale, you know, looking into microscopes or very far. We know now a lot about things which we had no clue about a century ago. But as far as the environment goes, as far as our own countries where we live and we, where we use the soil and the air, we know virtually nothing about it. And that is why you know, our countries, for instance, France or uh, Great Britain, they used to be centers of enormous world empires which were used to get a lot of food from outside. But it would be, I think, sci scientifically, it would be absolutely essential to study what is the quality of the soil of the United Kingdom, of Ireland, of Scotland, of, of France, of northern and southern France. How many people can you feed on the quality of that soil without imports? And that would give you an idea of uh, just an, a statistical idea, what should our population be in order to, in times of crisis, to, be, uh, to have enough uh, uh, product to feed our countries? None of that is done. There is no statistics, there is no theory. There are some ideas, but there is no theory on which politicians could actually take decisions, either at national or regional or or, or continental scale, and that is missing. So the, the decisions which are now taken for ecology, for saving the, the planet, and all these new propaganda items, is done blindly. No, and, and there's no, no reason, there's no serious, actually, data allowing us to plan how big a country should be. And then, suddenly, France decides that in the last five years, you have two million more people 
uh, coming from Algeria. Germany, two million more people from Syria and, and the Middle East. We can do this, said uh, uh, Mrs. Merkel, but she has no clue what can be done. It's only preparing you know, these imbalances of having suddenly too many mouths to feed in countries which don't have the soil nor the imperial might to feed these countries. It's just irresponsible. But I, I don't have an, a solution, but I think this theme must be addressed, that how much land do you need to feed one person? Uh, and and what, what quality of land? And then see, for instance, what would be the sustainable population for, for different countries? This is, this is a very um, good point, and I had lots of things going around my mind. The first thing was that, of course, the policies that we see coming across are increasingly not to do with nations. Uh, they are to do with, well, some of the descriptions tell us it's a global village. It is globalization. So the people who seem to be driving the world agenda um, always come back to the idea that we didn't bother with individual countries. Uh, we're only going to deal with the idea that we're living on this planet lost in a very big space. And so their, their descriptions to me automatically mean that they, they are not focusing on something which is common sense to you, which is how much can a country grow in order to feed its population. And then I can also bring in the fact that, of course, alongside the high-tech global cities, we've got the idea that food will not be grown in a natural sense. Food will be produced in a laboratory. High tech will solve the food problem. It will be grown in a laboratory or it will be insects kept in volumes and on a scale that we can't even imagine. So the, the ideology that drives this through is, is always remote from where your mind wants to take you, which is coming down to the to ground level in any particular geo. Um, um, location in the world to decide what is the best architecture and living environment in that area. If, if we look at, at, at Agenda 2030 and what it's telling us, this is, of course, also on a global scale. Um, and if we talk about data, the people who are building the Agenda 2030 policy are hoovering up data on a scale never seen before aiming towards, we'll say, the Internet of Things, so that every individual object that we use in our lives, whether it's clothing, clothing or food or cars, whatever it is, everything we touch will have a barcode attached to it so that that can all be put into a huge database. So I see at global level the data is being sucked up how much food is being grown in a particular region, what type it is, what quality it is. But that data doesn't seem to be then put back for beneficial use of people at local level. It seems to stay within the globalist mindset. You're absolutely right that there is clearly a, a master plan, whether it's expressed or, or whether it's organic, uh, to the kind of power structure which we have now, is that... What we see is the, um, the high-tech future, which goes towards uh, synthesizing, you know, having not only 
synthetic because what changed architecture and town planning <coughs> was mass transport, mechanical transport, and synthetic materials. Virtually 90% of building materials which are now used in architecture is, are synthetic. They are products of industry, of industrial processes, extremely uh, uh, needing extreme energy uh, use for creating these uh, synthetic materials. And the same, but they create uniform materials, no? and uh, which you don't have. You don't have in nature. Nothing is uniform. Everything, even similar things, are different. So. And that is what defines character, uh, regional character, <coughs> as far as uh, plant, plants go, as far as building materials go, as far as climate go. <coughs> what you know, the big risk with this is that uh, when we feed now when we have very large production lines being built, production plants being built for synthetic foods, is that we have no clue what these foods will do to, to health. Because they are basically experiments like the, the so-called vaccines, which are experimented on the world population. And the consequences we know will be disastrous, whether we believe in high tech or not. We know that experiments where there is no experience uh, uh, will lead to terrible, unforeseeable health problems and uh, social problems. So the, there is a movement, uh, for instance, uh, one of the founders of the New Urbanism, a colleague, Anders Duani, he wrote a book called, for the Prince's Foundation called Agrarian Urbanism, which I think I may have mentioned, which shows how with building new, small new towns regionally, how then agriculture can be rebuilt as small-scale uh, enterprises, allowing not just gigantic farms, but also maybe in the, a lot of people are interested in being, being peasants, growing, growing foods. No. And all that individual enterprise has been, uh, and individual talent is now cut from possibilities to exploit their, their talent either to grow foods, to build buildings, to, to make artwork, and so on. And um, because inex unexpressed, by, and the only one who is really in the Davos group who still talks about craftsmanship and scale problems, is the king. No. Unfortunately, he has very small voice in that, in that band of criminals. Huh? And <clears throat> therefore, the, I think planning is so, planning towns is so, absolutely central, because zoning, for instance, when you take an, a typical town thousand years ago, which would be founded either in England or in Silesia or, or in Italy, you would have for town, let's say, let's take 100 acres. You would have hundreds and hundreds of different building sites of different sizes, which would allow small poor families or richer families or institutions or governments or you know, administration or storage or for animals and so on. And the image of those, purely the lots, when you look at the plan of medieval town or a Roman town as it was founded, just the sizes of lots, the numbers of small, medium and large lots is colossal. It's just hundreds and hundreds of different size lots which allows the different ambitions in these uh, towns 
to build their house or their, f their factory or their manufacturing and so on, or their schools and so on. Now, when you look at, at, at planning, it's just zoning plans, they are just large colored areas, which are uh, area planning, which generally is of one function and which allows in areas which are many, many hundreds of acres, of, of hectares, only to have houses. In others, only to have shopping. No. And, and those are sizes which are only addressed to corporations, large corporations which can buy, finance, and, and realize these buildings. Whereas a traditional network of uh, offer of building site would allow you know, this microcosm of many different ambitions to become citizens, build their house in the city, produce things in the city which this with the town needs, instead of planning you know, what is happening now in Ukraine. You heard uh, Mr. Z President Zelensky inviting uh, BlackRock and uh, all these gigantic companies and uh, to take over the rest of the country, to plan for the future, which will be the breadbasket of, of, of Europe. I don't know. But there will be no, no small-scale architects. This will be done by mechanical, by robots. And, uh, because that is robotization of these bullshit jobs, which I mentioned last time, by, which okay. described by David Graeber, that most of these jobs will be performed in the future by, by robots. Yes. And that is where the human element is now being completely phased out of this very large enterprise project. And that is why it's so important to have a concept how to allow individual ambitions, individual talent to build its own house for his own family or his or her own family, be a tailor or, I don't know, a peasant or you know, grow food and so on. And that, that is where Ayn Rand is very interesting, because she said already in 1945, I think, she was a promoter of capitalism, as you know. But she said, we don't live in capitalism. We live in a form of capitalism which is in collusion with state power. And that is, excludes individual capitalists to go into competition with corporate capitalism. That is why a single a man who can cook very well cannot enter into competition with McDonald's or a global empire. And the state is supporting these global unit, unities, uh, corporations, because they pay for damn politics. <laughs> yes. And of course, the state fully in bed with um, uh, capital aims is fascism, if I remember correctly. So... Perhaps the beast is perhaps the beast is emerging. Um, Leon, the the clock is always unkind to us because I I, I get absorbed into what you're saying and the clock races by. Um, I'm going to say uh, you provided some wonderful um, images for us to share with the audience. We've probably got ten minutes uh, remaining. Which of the images would you like to uh, bring up on, on screen? I, I wondered whether Capital Luxembourg might be of interest um, because I perceive that was about um, 
change development to a big area of a city, but where, where would you like to go? Capital of Europe, Luxembourg, because Luxembourg is one of the capitals of, uh, of Europe uh, with Brussels, Strasbourg and Luxembourg. There's the parliament there and you know, this administration there and the, the absurd thing is that Brussels has to travel with archives. You know, there were enormous corporations which traveled, carried these archives once a month between these three cities. Now, in 1977, our prime minister commissioned the French architect to design the new European Parliament in Luxembourg, which was a monstrosity I can't show. It was called the prick. <laughs> it was like a prick. 160 meters high with the testicles were the parliament. The whole country laughed. This can't be done. And the engineer said, yes, this must be done because this is progress. This is a vision of, of the future. And I then did, but because the criticism was so childish that I decided to, to do a counter project. Because Luxembourg, as I explained before, is built on different plateaus separate by, by deep canyons and then linked by bridges. One of these, if you go back to the previous aerial view, which is a photograph, yeah, that was the park, park of institutions where you had a skyscraper, which was administration, a parliament building, uh, international, the European uh, Court of Justice, and a Holiday Inn, <laughs> which was very interesting, mm. a mixture of, of symbolic powers. Uh, the, this uh, prick was meant to be built between the skyscraper and the European Court, but it was meant to be, the rest was a sort of park, but of course the park with time would be transformed into a large car park and so on. Now that the size of this development was the size of the historic center of Luxembourg. So I said, why don't we build? Yes, in the center you see here the old center of Luxembourg, which was about a population of 10,000. And so I proposed that we build for the European community top right, top, top right, yes. That would be the new European uh, quarters where the 8,000 people who worked in these skyscrapers and different buildings, Centre Jean Monnet, and could then, instead of clogging the, the rest of the roads and the bridges uh, with their uh, commuting, could then live in beautiful houses right next to where they work. Uh, this was published a lot, and there was you know, a lot of uproar, but had absolutely no influence. We tried to promote this with European money, and uh, couldn't even, I had to finance myself. But it is something exactly that, that size of town which you see there is now, uh, we built in the last 10 years in Guatemala with the same density. And if you have an aerial view of this uh, Cayala project in Guatemala, yes, that's the plan. There's n all that is now built, it's nearly finished. And uh, <clears throat> which I convinced the developers were a very large family, a leal family, were wealthy landowners, they have sugar industries and agriculture in different Central American countries. So a lot of capital, also uh, construction industries. We built there oh, this quarter, which is, that is the central street, yes, that's the Paseo, uh, that's the high street. There's an, a vast church built, there's a huge uh, communal hall and that was, that was the, the main street, the Paseo, which was built all at once in a 
something like two years. And that is the interesting thing, that you have the campanile of the church, you have the public hall, that you had virtually within two years, you had the feeling he is already a town, even though the rest of the town only followed in the last eight years. And that is when you have the right idea, the, the right concept, the right scale of buildings, a town will never look unfinished like Neom. Now, when you start, you have to build the whole town, otherwise it will look unfinished. Whereas a town, once you have the first streets built, I had the same feeling when we had built the first streets in Palmbury, every all the attitudes changed because they felt we have a real place. This is not just housing, this is not just shopping mall, this is something like the beginning of a real town. And Europe could have built this easily because there were enormous funds for, for developing these buildings in Brussels, Strasbourg and Luxembourg, and they are everywhere in all the three towns. They are, there is not one single building worth looking at. No. It's all glass and steel and out of scale and, and monstrous scale and very unpleasant. Uh, so and that was the tragedy that the most important institution of Europe, which was representing the European unity rather than the, the, the struggles and the civil wars and, and the frontier wars, that instead of making symbolic buildings which would be so attractive that they would really seduce uh, people into the idea of, uh, of, uh, of Europe, representing the best of European architecture, they built you know, the most abstract and uh, robotic kind of architecture which has, in fact, become the symbol of European technocracy. When you know, I think, actually, uh, Britain left Brexit happened because there was no building to think of as European institution which could be attractive, like Westminster Palace or, I don't know, the French Assembly or the, uh, you know, the, the Rotonda, the, the Capitol building in, in Washington. All the buildings which were built are abstract, symbols of technocracy and pure, you no, know, unesthetic uh, construction. Construction L lacking, work. lacking humanity. Maybe that's a very interesting yeah. point. And and also, um, I think many rooms without windows. And uh, I, I remember reading somewhere that you should, you should never sign a contract in a room with no windows. I think the inference being that that uh, um, your mind is controlled by the fact you're in four inside four walls. I don't know whether that's true or not. Um, Liam, I would like to end here, um, and I was fascinated by this particular image because most of your discussion has been on very big urban developments, and. Um, I don't know where this is, but my perception is we've essentially got a, um, it's styled on timber framed building. And uh, so on the left, the timber framed building, as far as I see it, on the inside, uh, a wonderful uh, light and open space. Where, where was this development? It's my own house in, in Seaside, Florida. Seaside, Florida was was the first experiment without which Palmbury would not have been possible. It was designed by Andres Duani and uh, Lisbeth Zeiberg, and I was their consultant. I was their theory man you know, to tell them how to do an American version of the European town. 
And but I had by then I was so frustrated by then in the seventies that I said I'm doing architecture because I do not I'm an architect because I am an architect I do not build because the situation is so corrupt that anyone getting involved in building can only build corrupted products and but but the duanis and the and the um, promoter the, the the builder of this town he owned the land robert davis they came once to take me to the to the airport in, in miami i went there for a lot of lectures how to make towns and so on <laughs> i was their guru and they said in the car now Leo, you have to come to Seaside because we have now the conditions where you cannot refuse to build. <laughs> I said, let's see. So I went there and it was so, so nice that they gave me, you know, for my consultancy, if he was a piece of land, and I built my own house to show what, what this town should right. be like. And of course, because the, the traditional architecture of the area was a timber frame, I used that because the good ones still had in the area good craftsmen, or because all these projects, new urbanist projects, which were created by by Duani and Polisoides, all these people in America, there are many good architects now, that they always study what is the local vernacular, what has been building for the last two or three hundred years, and then establishing the, the style and the technique, and then generally find also the craftsmen. And Building, now living in that town while it was built was very pleasant because the noise of small building sites is very different from very large building sites. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of hammering and, and screwing. It. <laughs> okay. Do, should we just bring that, um, that black and white image on, on screen? So this is an aerial shot. And am I right? Your house is the one to the left of the picture. On the left. It's, it's the gate. Is actually the gate post of the, the entrance of the town. It has become, it started with very cheap houses, but because it's so attractive, it has, of course, the price have exploded. And some people who live there, they can't afford to keep the building because they would make so much money that the inheritors force parents to sell their house. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's iron. But this is not, this is not uh, unique. There is now many of these projects, I think over a hundred of these projects, which are now built some of very great quality and very, yeah. very pleasant. Okay. Leon, I'm sorry to say we must end there, but it's been a fascinating journey again, uh, all the way from the desert of Saudi Arabia through to uh, American traditional wooden buildings. So that's been utterly fascinating. I'd like to thank you very much for um, giving me another hour of your time. It's been wonderful. And um, I'll just, just to leave, we often ask this, what, what would you like to say to our audience? What would you like the UK column audience to be doing in order to enhance uh, the built environment and architecture? Well, I think that your audience, from what, I, from what I guess, are people who are very much still believe in common sense. And most people still retain what is beautiful. And when somebody tries to convince you that something is beautiful, which you find ugly, you must you have to mistrust that person because beauty is something which is self-evident you don't have to explain or change your mind about something right. which has right. to do with beauty 
Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much for that. And thank you so much for joining us again. I'm going to say bye-bye to our audience. And uh, Leon, it's been wonderful. Thank you.